Let's take our Bibles. Let's turn to 1 Corinthians 12. We're picking up our series on spiritual gifts. We've been talking about the importance of the body of Christ. The body of Christ is God's chosen vehicle that he revealed in Acts chapter 2 to carry his message of salvation forward and to be discipling the nations for the glory of his name. That is the ends of the church. To be sharing the message of the gospel and to be discipling people. That's all we're supposed to do. And if we're doing anything else, we are not being the church. The church has been bought with the blood of Jesus The church has been brought into a glorious position before God of blamelessness and righteousness and holiness, not because we were good people, but because Jesus was good for us and because our location has been transferred. We have put the house of death, which is the body, up for sale. It's gone. And we have moved out and we have prime real estate in the greatest center of Bel Air, heaven. Everybody with me? Okay, stretch your imagination here just a little bit. And that is a place called In Christ. We have a brand new location. Having that brand new location, we now have a new way of thinking. We now have a new way to guide us. We now have a new truth to hold on to, which has actually been true all along, but we're just now coming to terms and grips with it. And so it takes time to change what we've been indoctrinated from the inside out. And so that's what's taking place here. One of the greatest gifts that we've been given is spiritual gifts. But spiritual gifts have to be used spiritually. Otherwise, they're just a nuisance. And so as we've been going through and looking at spiritual gifts, we're having to come to a new book that talks about spiritual gifts, but we're also having to throw on the brakes as soon as we get into it because of everything that surrounds the church in Corinth. Now, if I were to ask you, you said, yeah, I've spent some time in church. I can tell you a little bit about Corinth. The only thing that we know is they seem to be the church that was permanently on spring break and that they love to abuse the gift of tongues. That's usually all we know about them. We see things in this book, some of us make us blush, some of us we don't want to read it, some of us we go, ooh, that's provocative, right? And we just keep going because our eyes can't help it. But chances are, we've maybe in some way touched upon some of the same problems that would parallel in that day. The question is, where did these problems come from? Well, it's sin. Yes, But what did that look like in their day? And so what I want us to do is take chapter 12. We're going to read the first three verses, talk a little bit about it. And then I want to start to unfold some things about the historical context that Corinth finds itself in, the danger that Paul saw about that and how his writing in Corinth went against that danger and how we very much are under the same possibility of that danger today. So that's where we're going. So look at chapter 12 of 1 Corinthians. He says, now concerning spiritual gifts. Does everybody see the word gifts? Okay. If you have a really good translation, you're going to find that that word gifts is in italics. A good translation is taking the words that are not there in the original. They've italicized them for you in order to let you know that's not in the manuscripts that this was translated from. This has been added by the translators to give the best understanding of what they think this is going for. So it's a very educated addition but it is not what was on the original manuscripts. 
And probably a better way to understand this is, is now concerning spiritual things, brethren, spiritual stuff. Now, how do we know that? Because if you were to take a little highlighter and go through and just mark where it said spiritual things or the Holy Spirit, you would find that between verses 1 and verses 13, you got a whole lot of marking to do about what's going on there. This is stuff surrounding the Holy Spirit and spiritual being and life for the church. He says, brethren, notice they're saved people. I do not want you to be unaware, or I do not want you to be ignorant or uninformed. There's no reason for anyone in the church to come to the table about spiritual things and go, uh, I don't know, is what he's saying. Everybody should know. Everybody should be brought up to speed. And that's what he seeks to do here. Now watch what he says. Verse two, you know that when you were, is that a dirty word? Pagans, it's not. When you were pagans, what does that mean? When you were godless, some of your translations are going to say Gentiles. It's because it's translated from the Greek word ethnos. Some of you were of an ethnicity that was outside of the great privilege that the Jews have given, or this background of the Old Testament in order to give you a framework of understanding who Jesus Christ is. You came from a pagan mindset, and a pagan mindset, if it's anything, it's one thing, godless. Now, that's not a bad thing to say. It's just calling a spade a spade about this. And the translators obviously didn't have a problem. You know that when you were pagans, you were led astray to mute idols, however you were led. Now, this is interesting because the word here, led astray, is the idea of captivity. In other words, these idols arrested you and led you off. And there you are, chains and shackles, walking away, wandering aimlessly in life. Notice that they're mute idols. These were deities that you looked up to that had no vibrancy, had no intimacy. They were impersonal. They were uninvolved. And they demanded to be appeased at all times in order for your life to go well. Now, trivia question, and hopefully we won't get this one wrong. What is behind idols? The devil, but demons in particular. No idol simply sits by itself. This mindset has been ingrained in people because of demonic activity. Don't think that Satan is not working today. Don't think that Satan wasn't working in Corinth. It doesn't take long to read the book to see. He's all up in their business. Okay, so anytime that they have this situation, and while they were pagans, understand the whole world is under the sway of the evil one. Everyone who does not have Christ is living out the philosophies that Satan is carefully woven in this day and age. That doesn't sound very nice, preacher. That's cool. I'm not here to be nice. I'm here to be truthful. That's exactly what it is. There is no fence. It's either Christ or it's godlessness and it's demonic activity. To sit here and say we can blur the lines in some way is to say that there's a neutral ground, and there's not. It doesn't take long living as as an adult in this life to understand. There is no neutral ground ground if we're not for christ we end up being against him the lines are pretty clear so notice what he's telling them think back to when you were led captive into a pagan way of thinking by mute idols and look what it says at the very end of two however you were led now that might seem strange that that's sitting there but the idea is is repeatedly you were going down this bad path it was your way of life It's the way that you thought. You constructed all of your decision-making around it. You even determined 
who you hung out with and why you associated. One of the crazy things about the first century is that a lot of pagan worship and temples and idols and all of this other stuff that went on was all because if you wanted to work and earn a living wage in that first century, your labor union was tethered to this demonic worship. Now, it was never painted as demonic. It was always very much something different, but it always has sin as the center of it, and usually some kind of strange, pagan, weird, dance-around, Jim Morrison, fertility cult weirdness going on, okay? It always did. Everybody stick with me today. we got a lot to cover, okay? So verse 3 says, Therefore, I make known to you that no one speaking by, or probably better translated, in the Spirit of God, says Jesus is accursed. That's the negative. He's drawing some lines here. Watch this. And then he says, And no one can say Jesus is Lord except by or in the Holy Spirit. Those are your positives. Now, why does he draw these lines so clearly? What was going on in their time that was causing issue in their ears? Because Corinth was a messed up church, yes? They had a lot of problems. But let's not begin to think for a second that all the problems were just because of origins in-house. It was all because of outside cultural influences that were pouring in from other things. And that's something that we need to pay very close attention to to understand why did they get so off track. Now, if you want, you're more than welcome to pull this out. You can always go over this later and take a look at it. But you can pull this out right here to take some notes. If you have the sermon booklet for this thing, that'd be great. If you want to research this stuff for yourself, I encourage you to to check it out. But what we need to understand is what's called normally the mystery religions of Corinth. The mystery religions of Corinth. If we could bring that up, please, PJ. The mystery religions of Corinth. Some things we need to know about the mystery religions. You might not be able to write all this down, but maybe there are a few things that you'll jot down to understand. What was going on in their day? Because religion was hugely important. Number one, it was varied in number. You might have a lot of people involved. You might have a little people involved, but there were all these little pockets everywhere around. And it could either be done in a public situation or a private situation. It didn't matter. You had to be initiated into these mystery religions. You say, well, what's the name of these mystery religions? Well, there's a few, but the big thing was there was a mystery. We know very little about them because everybody was, shh, don't tell what's going on. The word might get out. So it was mandatory to be initiated. You had to participate in a ritual reenactment of some story about a god, little g god, and their quest for victory or destiny that went on. And what usually happened is, is it started out with some movement, started out with some dancing. In fact, you would find that some of it would start out in Athens and they would travel around the countryside until they came to a part. All of a sudden, as it got later, they got a little bit crazier. I don't know if LSD was involved or not, possibly. But at the end of it, one of them would actually bark out in an ecstatic utterance that made no sense whatsoever, and then everything would stop. And they would say, this person has spoken with the gods on Mount Olympus. Now, ecstatic utterances speaking out out of nowhere, does that sound familiar to anybody? might be something. Keep that in the back of your mind. Especially we know what Corinth dealt with and what their problem was. And they would deem you've spoken with the gods. This reenactment was often known as the sacred rites or the mysteries that were to be participated in. Secrecy was absolute. Secrecy. Absolute secrecy. Couldn't say anything about it to anyone. What we do behind closed doors, no one needs to understand. Most narratives deal with this whole idea of birth, death, and rebirth. They wanted to have this reincarnation mindset that would constantly come on the scene. 
And it always had fertility as a major component. Have I told you guys about the courtyard in Corinth and what it was to Corinthianize? It's really disgusting. But it would deal with the idea of having uh, pagan uh, uh, prostitutes, both male and female, in this large courtyard. And in order to keep your job and remain in the labor union, you would have to go and participate in those types of acts over and over and over with all your co-workers. And so they had this major hole in this courtyard that was actually drilled in there that was probably about five feet by five feet and it probably dropped about 35 to 40 feet into the ground and it was the hole that when people got physically sick from degrading themselves in this way they would crawl over to and they would vomit down this hole and then go back to what they were doing they actually had a word for it you've been corinthianizing so that's the mentality that's going on in this historical context of what they're dealing with aren't you glad you came to church today hopefully nobody's eating anything right now right It was centered around the gods who live on Mount Olympus in a general sense. They are known as demigods. Now, here's what's interesting. A demigod is only half person and half God. Does everybody see why this makes Jesus Christ unique? Jesus Christ is half person, half God? Is that it? Is he a demigod? No, he's a 100% person. He's a 100% man and a 100% God. See, that's revolutionary thinking for somebody who'd been brought up in something like this. Some humans could become gods through trial and victory. Perseus, everybody remember Harry Hamlin? Perseus, everybody remember that? Going against Medusa, the whole idea? Everybody knows Harry Hamlin did that, right, really, actually? Okay, man, you guys have got to lighten up this morning, for real. What else is interesting about the gods, if you've ever researched any Greek mythology, and it's interesting how readily the Romans grabbed onto this and just pulled it into their culture, you always find that there's jealousy, there's infighting, And there's some God's carnal desires that are just out of control that got to be met in order to cause all of these problems. And these were considered regular, normal, acceptable attributes of those deities. Now again, notice that there's more than one. And you have those who rule over certain ones, right? Poseidon ruling over the sea kind of idea. But notice the part of what we would consider a sinful nature is just regular part and parcel of what it was to be a God at that time. In other words, there's no absolute of right, truth, ethics, morals, nothing. Now, what's interesting about this is probably the most famous and the oldest of these mystery pagan religions. We're going to talk about another one next week when we look at some of this. Is what's known as the Eleusian religions. If we could, yeah, there we go. And it stretched from the 5th century BC until about AD 380. And the reason why it kind of phased out in AD 380 is because it started to come to the point where Constantine was accepting Christianity as the accepted belief system for the time and brought it into law. Well, when that happened, all of these other things phased out because everybody wanted to be right with God and right with the government, and those two things were getting married together. Probably a really bad thing, but it still happened. It was popular because it admitted common man and woman. In other words, you didn't have to be an elite. Some of these situations, when you're dealing with the hierarchy, if you were the scum of your society, if you were the drag of your society, then you just stayed on the low totem pole. There was no chance of graduation. There was no chance of acceptance. And this was just your lot in life. But when it came to this realm and this thinking and this pagan religion, all of a sudden you were somebody as a co-equal with other people. Though it was Hellenistic, though it came in through Alexander the Great and the influence of the Greeks in their time, it caught on with the Romans because of popularity. See, the Romans were incredibly conservative people. They were very militant people. We have our traditions, we have our ways, we have our belief systems, but then all of a sudden, 
the Eleusinian religion started to get popular, and they said, well, you know what, maybe it's not so bad. Maybe we can compromise some of our morals and our standards in order to gain more people. Always a bad philosophy. What's interesting about this is Aristotle, Cicero, and Marcus Aurelius were all members. Now, we might not know much about them. We not, might not believe much about them. You know, Marcus Aurelius was an emperor at one time. But, I mean, imagine, you're, you're Joe Nobody, and you can go rub elbows with Marcus Aurelius. That, that feels pretty good. It's like hanging out with George Clooney, right? Yes? Anybody? Okay, just making sure. So, it wasn't so much that they were a cult that was active all year. It's not like, I belong to Grace Bible Church, and that's kind of their marker all year. Instead, it was a time at the end of September, beginning of October, when they had a week-long festival that ended up taking place, and everybody got involved in this. And the secret ritual seemed to do something to reduce somebody's fear to death. Now again, we don't know what it was, but when they came out of this initiation process, they were different people who were more enlightened. Okay. Now what's interesting about this, some of the things we do know about the initiation. It's called the sacred rite, is what we would view it as, but it has three parts. Dramina are things that are acted out. So there's something that went on with this relationship with pagan gods, and everybody's going to have this big theatrical spectacle, and they're going to act out how they think it went down. Another thing is called logomena, where we understand the idea of logos being spoken in that way. Uh, Things spoken, the oral presentation. So there was a telling of the story while it was going on. And then I can't even spell that word or pronounce it or anything. If I wouldn't have copied it, I would have got it wrong. But it's the thing shown. And these are the secret things, the sacred things. These are the sacred items. You say, oh, wow, what are these sacred items? Nobody knows. But we know that after they did this procession and this amazing thing, they were shown the sacred items, and after that it was considered to be an enlightening experience. Now what was odd about this was initiation had to be done twice. You would go through the first time not knowing anything that was coming your way, and it was called an eyes-closed experience then you would go through again and you would be known as a viewer because you would be anticipating what was going to be coming up next and just waiting for it all to happen but what was interesting is at the end of this whole process the people that were being initiated would step from complete and total darkness into absolute brilliant light and overwhelming sound now when we read in first corinthians 13 1 if i speak without love i'm just a a tinkling symbol I'm just a resounding gong. Boy, I can't wait till we get to that one. I got some fun things for you guys. But where did he get that from? If I don't speak without love, because love was one of the things that marked Christianity as different from these pagan religions, then I'm no better than going through some initiation process like this. And we've come into this grand scheme of understanding and enlightenment, but really how much better are you from an eternal perspective? Mm, Not really much. So I had a massive influence. Now what's interesting about this is some of the geography still holds over there we've got a couple of maps for you and one thing i wanted to show you on this was if you will look over to your left see where the red marker is that arrow tells you where corinth is if you look directly across there over towards the right you can't really see it well because it is pretty small you can see it kind of over here this is athens okay now right there the regional unit of western attica that is a little town called eleusius in fact can we bring that one up So you can see it closer. That little niche that's going on there is this little niche right here. 
And this is the area where all of this started taking place. And so they wanted to get involved in this and they're coming from Athens. Well, they've got a 10 and a half mile journey in order to have all this pomp and circumstance and still somebody, somebody freaks out and speaks in tongues. And now they've connected with the gods and we can, we can get them connected in with our secret society, our secret group. Now there's still some remnants of this uh, that stand around. Not that anybody's actively practicing this that we know, but some of their, and it's very interesting with pagan religions, caves are still there. We found uh, this is one of their larger caves. Notice that the seating has been set out. Everybody remember when we went over Mount Hermon? The gates of hell will not prevail against it. We talked about the, the founding of the church. It's interesting because Mount Hermon, you look at that, they also have a pagan cave as well. And, and, and this one in particular is considered one of the larger ones. The second one is also known, it's got these two areas, has got steps carved in there somewhere where you could actually go down to a secret meeting room that they would have and they would do whatever secret ritual that, that goes on down there. Now you say, why in the world do we bring all this up? Because this is what Paul is walking into when he's writing this book to the Corinthians. And there's a danger that takes place when somebody comes to faith in Christ, they hear the gospel, they believe in Jesus, they are now born again, they have eternal life as a free gift, their sins have been forgiven, they can now walk in a newness of life, the Holy Spirit resides within them, it's a complete change from what they've grown up with, and now they're fully, completely mature and can pass a PhD level theology class, is that correct? No, we're all babes in Christ and we've got to learn what it is to grow. And so Paul is very aware of a problem that could take place, and here's what it's called syncretism syncretism you need to write this down it's important that you understand it syncretism syncretism happens when someone mixes what they think the bible says about their inherent culture influenced worldview here's what i think the bible says about where i'm at and they combine these two very different views that lead them to adopting a third mixed belief system that is unlike the first two in other words I take a little from the world, I take a little from the Bible, and I put them in one little cup and I just stir them all up and, ooh, look at that, that tastes nice. Now here's the reason why that's so attractive. It's so attractive because how many of us like being held accountable for being wrong and in sin? No one does, do we? And so who do we get on our side? Our biggest fan, me. And if I can come to my belief system and say that the things that I like to dabble in or participate in are perfectly acceptable, and I'll even give some worldly justifications for why it's not totally immoral, but it's pretty okay, then I've got this brand new resolve that I can live my Christian life the way that I want to, and I can choose the things of the Bible that I really like, and I can throw aside the Brussels sprouts that I don't like. And what we find out is the Word of God will not allow you to do that. But the danger is, is this where a lot of Christianity falls today. Paul understood this, and in his writing to the Corinthians, he wrote against it. Let me show you some instances. Turn back to chapter 1. Chapter 1 of 1 Corinthians, we're going to start in the very first verse. I'm going to go a little quickly, but I'm going to point out some things. I want you to see why does Paul write these things the way that he writes them. Remember, he's got this mystery religion, Eleusinian cult idea, appeasing the gods, that whole thing. It's all crazy. It says here, Paul, called as an apostle of Jesus Christ by the will of God, and Sosthenes, our brother, to the church of God, which is at Corinth, to those who have been sanctified in Christ Jesus. Does everybody see that? 
You have been, past tense, sanctified. What's that mean? Set apart. Where? In this brand new location called in Christ Jesus. Isn't that very different from saying that you have to follow this ritual, you have to do these things, you have to reenact this story in order to gain some sort of initiation and acceptance amongst people? It's completely different. It's saying you can't do anything to be accepted. All acceptance has been secured for you. Now it can be imputed or transferred to you based on the merits of another people. In other words, what's so radical about Christianity against this mindset and against the mindset that we deal with today is it completely removes personal works out of the picture. Now with some of the way churches teach and believe, you wouldn't know that today. I am blown away that we have a book like Galatians. And yet we've got a whole sect of Christianity called Reformed Theology, the Reformed Church, and they teach that you need to keep the Ten Commandments to grow in your faith. That's insane. Because we're told we are no longer under the law. Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to every person who believes, Romans 10.4. It can't be any clearer than that. But notice, we've always got to get, well, you've got to do this in order for this to be made well. Well, we've got to see that you're really saved in order for you to really be saved. It can't just be about pleading the merits of another person. And so a statement like this, you have been sanctified in Christ Jesus, that's radical. Notice what else he says, saints by calling. What do saints mean? Holy ones. What's the word holy mean? Set apart. You've been set apart from these things in your culture. By God's calling. Look what he says after that. With all who in every place call on the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, their Lord and ours. Does everybody realize that's a very inclusive statement for a group of people? Doesn't matter who you are. Not one person's more saved or redeemed than another. All are redeemed equally because the blood spreads to everyone equally. All the footing at the cross is equal ground. So there's not an elitism that's going on. There's not a hierarchy that's going on. It's the body of Christ together. Different roles? Absolutely. Different roles within the church? Equal acceptance before a Savior? Yes. So that's drastically different from working my way to some sort of acceptance in salvation. Notice he says here, verse 3, Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I thank my God always concerning you for the grace of God which was given you in... There it is again, Christ Jesus, that in everything you were enriched. What does enriched mean? It means made rich, filthy rich in where? Him. Notice it says, in all speech and all knowledge. Why does he write that? Notice the equal standing in Christ. Notice that there's nothing to gain because everything has already been freely given to you in Christ. And it's not just in your speech, what you have to say, but also in your knowledge of things. Do we see that those types of cults are all about having different speech, right? Static utterances that go on and a superior knowledge. Why do you think they couldn't tell anybody? Don't you hate that game? I know something you don't know. Doesn't that drive you up the wall? You want to pull that person's fingernails out and throw them at them. Just me? There's my sin. Whatever. I know something you don't know. No, stop it. Right? Or tell me, tell me, tell me. That's what kids do, right? Having some sort of elite knowledge, some superior understanding that somebody else can't attain to. Notice that's not what Paul's saying. Christianity's not like that. You have this perfection, this enrichment in Christ, both in your speech and in your understanding. 
of things. He says, verse 6, even as the testimony concerning Christ was confirmed in you. In other words, there's nothing to earn. You're secure. You're locked up. You've been strengthened in this. There's nothing to gain. Verse 7, so that you are not lacking in any gift. Stop. When we look at spiritual gifts in Corinth, they may have been a wayward church, but here's one thing that Paul tells us at the beginning. There wasn't one spiritual gift they didn't lack in their body. Notice it's the same here. As far as the body of Christ is concerned, God so orchestrates the body so that every gift can be represented within it to make up a complete body of Christ. Notice he says, you're not lacking in any gift, awaiting eagerly the revelation of our Lord Jesus Christ. In other words, living with the end in mind. Verse 8, who also will confirm you to the end blameless in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. In other words, your acceptance isn't about your performance. It's about the position that Jesus Christ has put you in. And that position is in Him. Verse 9, God is faithful through whom you were called into fellowship with His Son, Jesus Christ our Lord. In other words, it's not about the gods being far off. It's not about deities that aren't getting involved. We have to somehow do something terrible in order to get their attention so that they will help us and make our crops grow and all this other weird stuff like that. It's about having a personal, perfect, open, able, yes and amen, ready at any time, fellowship experience with the Lord. Or we'll say it this way. We're all as close to Jesus as we want to be at any given moment. The question is, is how close do we want to be? Because there's nothing that's hindering him. What's hindering us? Notice in this situation, it's, well, you need to sacrifice this. Well, you probably need to go to this temple. You need to take care of these problems. It's all about the works that you do to earn it. Jesus says it's done. You can't earn it. Here it is freely. Everybody see how those two worldviews are completely different. Yes? Okay, because we can't move any forward until you tell me yes. Okay, great, yeah. See? see? No, I'm not going to see the Packers game. That's in trouble. Look down at verse 18. Here's a big one. For the word of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing. But to us who are being saved, it's the power of God. When a pagan hears about Jesus Christ died for your sins and rose from the grave, you can be saved by believing in Him. They say, that's the dumbest thing I've ever heard. That shows you their pagan mindset. They deem it as foolishness. Why? Because the question we're all asking is, well, what do I have to do? Give me something to do. Churches spent too long doing and acting like the world and not enough of relishing in the fact that we're being by being accepted in Christ. And this is why he wants to talk about the position they have in him, not what they need to do to attain some position with him. In Christianity, you don't have a position to attain. You have a position that's been attained for you that's freely given to you. Notice because they're a wayward church, he doesn't come in and start bashing them. You dumb Corinthians, what's wrong with you people? Can't you just get your act together? The automatic answer to that is no, we can't apart from Jesus. We can't. So this is why he starts with positional truth. Don't you realize the complete riches that you have because of Jesus Christ? Start from there. Don't start from do better, try harder. What's wrong with you? Never works. It never works with people. Anybody ever guilt trip them into a greater experience with Jesus? Anybody? I didn't think so. We just end up feeling more like scum. That's how I feel. Well, I just need to do this. Every time I need to do this, I find out that I'm not doing that, and now I can't even live up to the expectations I put for myself. You know what that is? Wah, wah. Terrible. 
That's a sad way to live in relation to Jesus. No. How about this? Go forward to chapter 2. Notice he's going to bring up things about speech, knowledge, and wisdom again because this is everything that the Eleusinian cults were promoting. He says here, And when I came to you, brethren, I did not come with superiority of speech. In other words, I wasn't a great speaker so I could sweep you off your feet. He says here, Or of wisdom, I wasn't here to razzle-dazzle your mind where you were like, Oh, that was amazing. That's not Paul's M.O. Notice he says, proclaiming to you the testimony of God. That's his message. For I determined to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. In other words, my message isn't going to start with you and what you need to do. My message is going to start with God and what He has done for you because you can't do it for yourself. Drastically different from trying to earn acceptance. I was with you in weakness, that's not very admirable, in fear, good grief, Paul, what's wrong with you? And in much trembling, you wimp. Is that how we should look at this? No, notice what he's saying. Paul's saying it's not about me. It's not about people. It's about the wisdom of God. It's about the strength of Christ. It's about the victory that he has secured. It's not about how well we speak. Some of you might not think I'm a good preacher. That's okay, don't tell me. You tell me I'll get in a fetal position in the corner and suck my thumb for three weeks. I won't be the same. But that's okay. I don't have to be a great preacher. I just have to be a truthful speaker. That's all it is. Let's tell him. Jay, go to children's church. That's all I got to say. Verse 4. And he says, And my message and my preaching were not in persuasive words of wisdom but in demonstration of the Spirit and of power. Why? Here's the reason. So that your faith would not rest on the wisdom of men, but on the power of God. You ever seen a situation where a pastor has a moral failure and tons of people fall away from the faith? Where were their hopes lying? On the man or on the Christ? Everybody see how that's different? But he's such an elegant speaker. Who cares? They might be lying to you. What's important is the truthfulness and the content of their message. And notice that Paul is constantly pointing to Christ. Christ, Christ, Christ. Every time. It's all about Christ. God's answer is always Jesus Christ. Notice this. Move over to chapter 3 with me. Now this is where he's dealing with the idea of the fact that there are carnal Christians and there are spiritual Christians. And then there are natural people who don't have a relationship with Jesus at all. So unsaved, spiritual Christians are those who are walking in the Spirit. Carnal Christians are those who are letting jealousy and strife dictate their lives, even though they're redeemed, but they're acting like the world. They're acting in a carnal manner. Look at verse 5. He says, what then is Apollos? And what is Paul? Here's what they are. Great, amazing demigods that have come down to you from on high and want to share with you the way of enlightenment. Is that what he says? This was the danger in Acts chapter 14. If you remember, they grabbed Barnabas, they called him Zeus, and they grabbed Paul and they called him Hermes. And he said, whoa, what in the world just happened? They immediately wanted to take them and fit them into their world system. How do I take what I already know and what you're telling me and put it in one big cup to drink? They tried to do that with them. Notice what Paul is, don't look at people. It's not about personalities. Don't worry about Paul. Don't worry about Apollos. That's nothing. What are they? They're servants through whom you believe. Notice again, pointing to the Lord. Even as the Lord gave opportunity to each, I planted, Apollos watered. But God 
was causing the growth. In other words, we may have been active in ministry, but it all goes back to God. Focus on God. So neither the one who plants nor the one who waters is anything, but God who causes the growth. Look down at verse 16. This is a good one. Man, this had to shake some people. Everybody remember the caves I showed you? Right? We got to go somewhere to worship. Think about this idea. Verse 16. Do you not know? Which means you ought to know this. Okay? Do you not know that you are the temple of God and that the Spirit of God dwells in you? Pagans are going, okay, time out, what? You mean I don't have to go to like the cave down there? No. I don't have to go down those stairs? No. I don't have to hang out in the dark room? No. You don't have to dance around? You don't have to travel 10 miles from Athens to Eleusis? You don't have to do any of that stuff and chant this weirdness and speak out and bark like a dog or whatever? You don't have to do any of that stuff. Why? Because you are the temple of God in Christ. You don't have to go to temple. You are the temple. That's why I don't like calling this room a sanctuary. I call it the auditorium. Anybody know where the sanctuary is? Right here. How do I know that? Because the Holy Spirit dwells there. What's another word for sanctuary? Temple. The Holy Spirit dwells in this temple. They're going and they're getting some manifestation of the Spirit. Things happening, revealing themselves, strange occurrences, maybe it's apparitions. We don't know what it is. But all that is happening in order to deceive because demons are behind it. So why not bait the fish and lead them further down the line? No, 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 no. You don't have to go anywhere. You know where you worship? Right here. Why is that? Because the Spirit of God Himself dwells here. That's radically different thinking. Radically different thinking from waiting to have some sort of pagan, mysterious experience by keeping a checklist of what to do and what not to do. Everybody see why this is weird and why Paul states things this way? Yes? Now, here's the question that I have. What are some problems with possible syncretism happening in the church today? We're going to deal with this a little bit more next week. Here's a good one. Well, prayer is a good thing. We'd all agree with that, right? But I only really pray when there's trouble. Now, notice, that's not something we would necessarily verbalize. That's just an honest, let's come to a moment with ourselves. Yeah, prayer is important, absolutely. When do you pray? Well, I got that bill in the mail, man. That really drove me to my knees. Well, that person got sick. And all of a sudden, I found that I had all kinds of time to pray. A lot of times, we make the mistake that we're too busy to pray. Do you realize that busyness is a construct of this world system that is orchestrated by Satan in order to keep us from having a bit of peace and calm and clarity in order to worship our God and talk to Him? It is crowding us out. I have no problem flipping the, the, the remote, right? I have no problem having 16 subscriptions to every part of Disney Plus that you could possibly ask, right? I'll subscribe to anything. I can watch YouTube till the cows come home. I know their algorithms better than they do. But when it comes to prayer, what has happened to the time of personal conversation with our Lord just because He's God? Just because He's our Savior? just because He's blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, just because He has exalted us and seated us in a position at the right hand of Christ, seated alongside Him before the Father. Aren't those reasons to pray as well? Do prayers have to be, Lord, help me with this? Can't they just be, thank you, God? But this is a way that secretism has crept in. We say we believe that prayer is important, but we find that it's only those heightened adrenaline experiences 
to where we actually get serious about prayer. And then we wonder why it doesn't seem like that our intimacy with the Lord is growing. Secretism has crept in. Prayer's good, but only use it when you need it. How about the next one? I feel like God wants me to. What's the trigger word there? Oh, what's the problem with the word feel? Are feelings bad? Feelings are not bad. Are they bad when they're in the wrong place? Yes, and when feelings are up front, have you ever had, well, I just went into a blind rage. Everybody remember when Aaron Rodgers was bad-mouthing the Bears with words I can't say? Sad Pastor Steve's not here to live up on that, but he said, I blacked out for a moment. I bet you did, right? I'm just in an emotional fury. I can't control myself. I feel like God wants me to. What does Proverbs 3, 5, and 6 say? Trust in the Lord with all your heart and do not lean on your own. Then it gives you the key. In all your ways, acknowledge him and he will make your path straight. Notice, our goal isn't to make the path straight. Our goal is to acknowledge Him at every turn. He does the path making. My heart is to be set on Him and what He has said. My own understanding, what I think it ought to happen. Here's how the best way I think we could do this here. Dangerous words. So many times I feel God wants me to, the only one that's worse than that is, well, the Lord told me, if He didn't tell you out of the Word of God, you're wrong. Close the door on that. That's not the Lord. How about the next one? Going to church brings me closer to God. Does everybody realize there's syncretism in this? Are you closer to God when you're in this building? No. In fact, do you realize that when we die, the only way that we're closer to the Lord is we're going to see Him face to face. But if we say that we're closer to God when we're in a certain location, number one, that's the, that's the beginning problem of syncretism. Church is a place, not a people. The Bible doesn't speak of it that way. When it says the church in Corinth, it's talking about the body of people regardless of where they're meeting. They can meet in a building like this. They can be hanging out at the Piggly Wiggly. It doesn't matter. They're still the body of Christ, and that's the church that you're talking about. So it's a person. But we say that we're closer. What does that say about the omnipresence of God? Ah, notice the attributes of God becomes diminished in our thinking. I feel closer to God when I'm at church. Going to church brings me closer to God. Are we looking for the willies or are we looking for truth? That's a difference. Here's one that really messes people up. God will never give me more than I can handle. I'm going to tell you this. And it's not just because it came from, from, from Jay. I'm actually really happy to hear that people don't believe that. Because I hear that a lot. God will never give me more than I can handle. Now imagine, you're a guy who's been called away from herding sheep to walk into the superpower of the world under God's authority and to lead out His people. And as you've seen these incredible things happen before your eyes where Pharaoh is letting people go, you are leading two million plus out in the middle of nowhere. And you come upon a large body of water and you go, hmm... And then you hear something in the background and you turn around and you see the people that you were running for from coming for you. Hmm, I think that's more than we could handle. How about Gideon? We got a thousand people to go to battle, God. Yeah, it's too many. 
You need 300. Uh, that had to mess your abacus all up, right? Your calculator is malfunctioning at that point. You've got too many. Does that sound overwhelming? Yeah. Mary, I know you're young. I know you're not married. The Holy Spirit is going to conceive within your womb the Savior of the world. You're going to have a baby before you ever have sex. What? Is that overwhelming? Is that more than she could probably handle? Yeah. See here, why do you think we like that then? God will never give me more than I can handle. Why is it about us handling anything? It sounds safe. We like it because we have control. Well, I know this can't be from God because I can't handle this. I would say it probably is from God because you can't handle this. Why does God give us things we can't handle? Because it drives us to Him. Because He's always seeking to be the answer every time. And we always are digging in our pocket. Well, I got this answer here somewhere. It's amazing. No, you don't have the answer. God has the answer. And because we haven't come to that realization, He's taking us the long way around. Everybody turn your Bibles. 1 Corinthians 10. Turn over just a few pages here. Because here's where we get this idea from. 1 Corinthians 10. Look at verse 13. Notice it doesn't say no situation. It says no temptation has overtaken you, but such as is common to man. That means that whatever you're being tempted with is not unusual. You're not the first person to be tempted with it. This isn't the first time this came along. It's like, man, we just, I, I don't know what to do here. I'm just, this is uncharted territory. It's not. The temptation is not. Look what he says. Temptation is not overtaking you, but such as is common to man. And here's what he reassures you with. God is faithful. Notice that that immediately corrects the thinking. You may be tempted in a way, and you may be tempted to think that it's an unusual means. It's not. God is faithful in this situation. He's faithful to you. Why? Who will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you are able. That's what it is. The temptation will never become such as to where you couldn't handle it. This means that all of the excuses we make about lacking self-control are invalid for the church. How do we know that? God would have to stop being faithful in order for the self-control excuse to have any water. So notice, it's not unusual. God's faithful. He won't allow you to be tempted beyond what you're able. But with the temptation, here's how God orchestrates history. He will provide the way of escape also so that you will be able to endure it. In other words, He's going to open for you a spiritual Scooby-Doo trap door that you can get out. He's going to open it wide open. Now here's the thing. Do we take the divine way that He supplied in this situation? Or do we see how close we can get to the edge without falling over? And then will God give us more than we can handle? Yes. We allow us to be tempted beyond what we can handle. No. Two different things. But yet I can't tell you how many times, and it's a result of syncretism. How I think the world works, what I think the Bible says. This is what my theology is. And that's why Paul is having to write, and this is why we're taking the time to look at instances throughout the book of 1 Corinthians. Here's the dangers that he was finding. And everything he's saying is have to correct wrong theology, wrong thinking about God. Why? Because when we think poorly about God, we sin richly. That can't be us. Let's pray.
Father, I pray in this time that you would reveal to our hearts places where we've bought into favoritism, where we have become convinced in some way that what we think the Bible says is true when it actually tells us otherwise. Father, I'm thankful that you're compassionate and you're full of mercy in those situations. You invite us to come. You invite us to bring honesty before you. And I'm grateful that Jesus makes that possible. But Lord, let us not make excuses. Let us recognize the seriousness of what it is to understand that our culture has been woven by your enemy and our enemy. It has no good in store for us. But all of our riches are complete and certain in Christ Jesus alone. If we don't accept that, if our hearts want to think better of our surrounding, teach us. Show us. Understand that all of our answers are in you. That all of our life is wrapped up in you. And it's all because of what Jesus has done. Thank you, Lord, that we don't have to earn it, but that you've earned it all for us and you give it to us freely as a gift. And we thank you for all of this in his name. Amen. Amen.